cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 24th, 2012. We're almost a twelfth of the way through the year. By the way, somebody sent me a a photograph that said that the world can't end in December of 2012 because Marty McFly in Back to the Future traveled to the year 2015. That's a really compelling argument. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of, well, crazy, bizarre, almost um, unbelievable things being said about God uh, out there. And all of it's kind of needless because we actually have a clear word from God in the Scriptures. And so some of these crazy things just don't make any sense. And so what we're doing is we're just doing the comparative work on this program. It's politically incorrect. But uh, somebody's got to do it, and, well, I'm just silly enough to do it. So, But believe me when I tell you, this is a controversial program. If uh, you're new to this program, you're going to need to give yourself a little bit of time to settle in to figure out what exactly what's going on. You, and it, listen, it's okay if you want to yell at me. I completely get that. You know, Just get it out. You know, um, I've received emails several times from people saying, listen, we had some pretty heated discussions, you and I. And that's perfectly okay. You want to get it out? You want to you want to have an argument with me? You go right ahead, but make sure when you're arguing with me that you got your Bible open. That's the important part. So, <laughs> all right, today is our first post-Code Orange Revival edition of Fighting for the Faith. I mean, are you Code Orange Revivaled out? Well, yeah, we're not quite done with all of the dust as far as... It, there's still a few things that need to settle. We'll... Uh, easy easy into some of that. And so let, let me just put it this way. Um, today and tomorrow, it, we will not be doing any uh, bad sermon reviews today. And tomorrow will be our light edition of Fighting for the Faith uh, so that we can kind of reset and <laughs> cleanse our palate. You know, because that's the thing. I mean, if you've ever been to a fine restaurant, not that I really spend any time in fine restaurants, but I do remember this. I've been, you know, to a nice restaurant like occasionally a couple times in my life. And, you know, between the, the courses, they uh, they give you something to... Uh, 
cleanse your palate so that you can savor the taste of the the next uh, the next dishes, so to speak. So. Well, think of this edition of Fighting for the Faith is we're going to do a little bit of the cleansing of the palate, at least in hour number two today. Uh, got a new uh, pastor that we're going to uh, be bringing on to Pirate Christian Radio. And I, holy guacamole, this guy is amazing. Now, not because he's so dynamic, but because he faithfully preaches law and gospel, sin and grace and repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He's a pastor from uh, Riverbend Lutheran Church in Edmonton, uh, in Alberta, Canada, and his name is Pastor Cy Van Manen, and we will just refer to him uh, moving forward as Pastor Cy, S-Y-E, and uh, he's he's going to be uh, giving us, we're going to do a Pastor Cy twin spin in our number two of uh, Fighting for the Faith, and if you've never had a flamethrower of the law burn your face off kind of uh, law preaching, if you haven't heard that lately, uh, buckle up, because um, <laughs> the second... The second sermon we're going to be reviewing, we're going to, like I said, we're going to be doing a twin spin. Second sermon is called "How Sinful Is Too Sinful," and this is a double barrel flamethrower of of a sermon. I, I kid you not. If you can listen to this sermon without uh, you, without your eyebrows and and you know facial hair being singed, uh, then then you must be made as, of asbestos. That's all I'm saying. You know, I, I, I'm going to tease you now with it, but uh, I got to tell you, we're going to have Pastor Sai uh, 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 as a regular pastor in our Preaching Christ uh, program at Pirate Christian Radio. If you uh, listen to Pirate Christian Radio, then you know that generally towards the uh, I, this, these are Eastern Standard Time, uh, you know, times here because I'm in the Eastern Time Zone. Um, but if you listen to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, not fighting for the Pirate Christian Radio, Eastern Standard Time between, like, say, uh, uh, what do I want to say, 145 and, like, 215, somewhere in there on a daily basis. We usually have a program running called Preaching Christ. And so we're going to be uh, we're going to be putting Pastor Sai into the Preaching Christ rotation there. So, uh, you know, if those of you listening to uh, PCR throughout the day will uh, come in contact with his preaching in the future, just just to let you know. But uh, so I'm kind of starting backwards here and talking about you know, what we're going to talk about on uh, in the uh, in hour number two. And then tomorrow is it's our light edition. You know, middle of the week is just generally a difficult time for me production wise and other things. And I'm going to try to uh, keep tabs, uh, if you would, on the uh, elephant in the room conference too tomorrow. And so uh, the the idea is is that tomorrow is going to be our light edition. And uh, there's the, the the good news is is that Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, has posted a whole bunch of uh, uh, more of the lectures that Dr. Rod Rosenblatt delivered on uh, Martin Chemnitz's Two Natures in Christ. If you if you are uh, following that series that we did. We had to stop because they stopped posting them. But um, you know, we l- ended at lecture number fourteen. Tomorrow we're going to pick up with uh, lecture fifteen, and we've got a whole. We got maybe four or five more weeks of those lectures that we're going to pr- play here at Fighting for the Faith. So that's on tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And then you're thinking, well, what are you going to talk about today? <clears throat> Buckle up. That's all I can say. We got two kind of things that we're going to talk about in hour number two today, and it's going to take the whole rest of the first hour, uh, and that is, is we're going to talk about James McDonald's resignation today from the uh, the Gospel Coalition. This uh, this resignation comes on the eve of the Elephant Room 2 conference, and so you, yeah, it, it, I think it has some, I think that this creates a dot 
in being able to plot the trajectory of what we can expect tomorrow at the Elephant Room. So we're going to talk about James McDonald's resignation, what was formally said, and uh, and then uh, uh, here's the deal. Um, Ken Silva of Apprising Ministries, apprising.org, apprising.org, has uh, come to be in the possession of, uh, of an in-house uh, talking points email that was uh, forwarded to him from a, an anonymous source uh, inside of the Harvest Bible Chapel organization. But, um, y- yeah, we're going to be talking a little bit about that email because uh, we're going to l- first look at the uh, the party line, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the official story that was put out regarding James McDonald's resignation. Then we're going to talk about this talking points email because here, here's the deal. I- I've spent some time uh, behind the scenes working in politics. When I was a younger guy, I was the treasurer for the Republican Central Committee in California's 43rd and 44th uh, congressional districts. And so I I had exposure to and know a little bit about political talking points. Well, it turns out that the uh, Harvest Bible Chapel execs have sent out an email informing us of what was going on behind the scenes regarding James McDonald's resignation, but gave explicit directions, talking points, if you would, regarding those who would be, well, critics or would want to stir the pot. So I want to share some of the content of that talking points memo or email with you and, uh, and at least, you know, give it to you so that you know some of the, what the broader story is. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a blog post put out today by Dan Phillips of the Pyromaniacs blog. He has a a, a blog that is called Biblical Christianity, and uh, he's uh, caught James McDonald in James McDonald's official explanation as to the reason why he resigned from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Dan Phillips has caught him playing the "God Told Me" card. Yeah, you you, you know there's. You, you all heard of the Pharisee card, you know that's the Pharisee card is what happens is if you are critical of anything that anybody, any of these seeker-driven guys say, say wait a second, the Bible doesn't say that. They'll go Pharisee, Pharisee. Well, apparently there's a few other cards in in their in the hands that they play, and one of the cards they like to play is the God told me card. Yeah, God told me to do this card. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, read Dan Phillips's thing, and then we're going to switch gears. I, you know, uh, sometime in here we'll take a break. Uh, but uh, Brittany Smith of the Christian Post has written another fantastic article. One I didn't even know was coming out. However, she you know, went, you know, I spent a couple hours talking with her on the phone last week. Uh, she's reworked, basically worked out a brand new uh, uh, news story entitled Mega Church Revival Reignites Discipleship Versus Evangelism Debate. And this is a fantastic article. And I think kind of lays out you know what's going on as far as what i can consider to be a stupid silly debate this shouldn't be a debate at all because when it comes to evangelism and discipleship the bible doesn't give us this as an either or proposition take one and leave the other or you know do do the one you like to do but ignore the other the bible doesn't give uh, pastors or congregations uh, an out card regarding uh, which one they get to pick it's both yeah uh, so we're going to take a look at that um and then i've got i i've got a fantastic uh, blog post from pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley's blog entitled can satan change lives can satan change lives and this will uh, you know, uh, give us the opportunity to talk about what's going on in you know, some of the post code orange revival discussion out there and debate regarding what took place because you know the code orange revival supporters are saying look at all the changed lives out there you know how can you deny that this is of jesus like we got people who have had changed lives 
<laughs> to which I would basically say, really? Okay, let me see if I have this straight. You know, the, the Code Orange revival wrapped up how many days ago? Two? And you're pointing to all of these changed lives? I mean, seriously. If somebody's going to make the case that the Code Orange revival has changed all these lives, tens of thousands of lives out there, uh, then, I mean, seriously, we can make the case that, well, I mean, on January 1st, of every single year, there are all of these changed lives as a result of, well, you know, New Year's resolutions, right? And everybody knows, yeah, okay, yeah, that's not going to prove anything. Yeah, don't you be knocking New Year's resolutions. Look how many lives it's changed. And everyone's going, yeah, the problem with the uh, whole New Year's resolution thing is, is that New Year's resolutions usually last till what? January 2nd and a half, January 3rd. For the really strong of heart, January fourth, right? I mean, you know, do New Year's resolutions change lives? Well, absolutely, they do. If you ask the question on January first, you get what I'm saying. So the proof isn't on how many people claim to have their lives changed during the revival. The question is, yeah, we're gonna need to look down the road here. We need to have a broader view of history. I'll take a longer scope and really kind of see how those changed lives have panned out in the long run. Are there really any disciples being made? That's the question. So that's going to round out first hour. I've already told you what's coming in second hour. So, you know, all I can say is make yourself comfortable. And uh, I I need to um, let you know, as we uh, get into a political season here, uh, it's important to note that uh, particular People, you know, they send out notifications to say they approve of this message. Well, here at Fighting for the Faith, we've uh, received some official disapproval um, uh, type um, messages that we need to play from time to time. Uh, Here's the first one. Hello, my name is Stephen Furtick, and I disapprove of this message. Look out, look out. The elephants on parade, here they come! They're here, then there. elephants everywhere! Look out, look out! They're walking around the bed, on their head, clippity cloppity! Parade, in braid, the elephants on parade! What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view! I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but Technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid. Need your eight big elephants on parade. Big elephants. Big elephants. There you go. That's our update music for the Elephant in the Room conference. And, uh, well, Elephant Room 2 is tomorrow, which is kind of interesting because a big news story broke today, and that is is that James McDonald has tendered his uh, resignation from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, And, you know, this is a big deal because uh, if you remember early on when uh, James McDonald announced that T.D. Jakes, the uh, famous Sibelian modalist, uh, was going to be one of the featured brothers in Christ uh, who would be invited to, to uh, participate in conversations at the uh, Elephant Room 2, that uh, the folks in the Gospel Coalition, um, well, many of them, well, 
seemed less than thrilled. In fact, they wrote some pretty blistering doctrinal reasons why James McDonald ought not to be inviting somebody like T.D. Jakes to the elephant room. So while the controversy apparently brewed behind the scenes, and the result today was the announcement that uh, James McDonald was officially resigning from the Gospel Coalition. So let me read to you his official explanation from his website, which can be found at jamesmcdonald.com. If you click on blog, January 24th, 2012, today, the the story hit. Um, Here's what uh, James McDonald wrote regarding his resignation from the Gospel Coalition. He says, It seems like almost a decade ago that D.A. Carson came to our church offices in Rolling Meadows, Illinois, shared his vision for the Gospel Coalition, then unnamed. It was clear and compelling to me, and I joined it to do all I could to help him and others rally gospel men around the preservation and extension of sound biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Seems like apparently uh, James McDonald has abandoned that mission of you know gathering gospel men and preserving sound biblical theology uh, because he's aligned himself with men like Perry Noble, T.D. Jakes, Stephen Furtick, and others. We continue, though. Uh, McDonald writes, he says, Though never entirely comfortable with the title Reformed, and unable to score higher than a 3.8 on the C test, and I guess that's the Calvinist test, I believed... I believe in these important biblical distinctions as protections against man's, uh, against a man-centered gospel. I also believe strongly that local pastors benefit from an association that holds a high standard for churches in preserving, even contending for, sound theology. Our church's doctrinal statement has only strengthened during the helpful association and will remain unchanged, as will the doctrinal statements of Harvest Bible Fellowship, and our church plans. We are uh, resolutely committed to biblical fidelity and the gospel proclamation. We are deeply committed to the exposition of Scripture as the centerpiece of our church planting work around the world. As our church church's support for the coalition grew, I was invited to serve on the board and got to witness the wonderful organizational integrity which supports the coalition work. I have grown to appreciate men who share our passion for the Word of God, but have very different views on baptism, ecclesiology, and how best to advance the mission Christ has given us. What we hold in common has been of greater value than any ministry method that separates us. Most of the friendships I have with council members preceding my joining, and I am assured they will continue long into the future. I've always believed in the institutional maxim, the whole is more important than the part. I am actually a very small, small part of the work God is doing through the coalition, and I believe their work will be assisted by my absence given my methodological convictions. I have very different views on how to relate to the broader church and how the gospel must impact every relationship. I don't want my minor role on the council to hinder their work as a whole or to give the impression that they agree with all God has called me to do. Ben Pays, the primary leader of the coalition, accepted my resignation with regret and understanding, and Don Carson thanked me for my efforts these last years. I wish that the coalition I wish the coalition well in the pursuit of their goals, and I feel greatly blessed by the impact this association has had and would continue to have upon my ministry. So that's the official uh statement regarding his resignation. 
but there's more. And uh, this is why I talked about the fact that we're going to be discussing the talking points email that was sent out. Ken Silva of apprising.org came to be in the possession of an email that was sent out by Kent Shaw. Kent Shaw, if you're not aware of him, is the executive director of the Harvest Bible Fellowship folk out there. And so he worked very closely inside of Harvest Bible chapels uh, with uh, James McDonald. And uh, he sent out an email to the leadership in the Harvest Bible Chapel organization, or the Harvest Bible Fellowship. And, um, well, the best way I can put it is, as somebody who spent some time in politics, is, is that this is um, the equivalent to a talking points memo uh, sent out email f- uh, style. So sent out yesterday, Monday, the January 23rd, And the subject read, Important Communication from Kent, from the desk of Kent Shaw, January 23rd, 2012. Dear men, we continued to praise God for the rich time we had together last week in Orlando. It was great to be able to connect again as a fellowship and to be refreshed together. Plans are shaping up for next year's Senior Pastors and Wives Retreat in Orlando again. More information on that will soon follow. As partners together, we want to keep you informed of key events surrounding the Elephant Room. Please find below an email sent to the Harvest Bible Chapel senior leaders and elders. Last week, James was put under a lot of pressure from leaders of the Gospel Coalition, a reformed group of about 50 pastors he has fellowshiped with for the past few years. They were asking that he pull the plug on Bishop Jakes coming to the Elephant Room Conference. Their reasons are rooted in weak evidence of Jakes' current doctrine and infighting among the black members of the Gospel Coalition who have deep-seated resentments. Crawford uh, Loritz is uh, the black pastor who spoke at James's 50th birthday and is also a council member of the Gospel Coalition. Crawford is participating in this uh, Elephant Room Conference because he believes in what James is doing and has uh, stepped forward to help. All that to say, not even Gospel Coalition members are unanimous in their opposition, but certain influential men have rallied to pressure James to cancel Bishop Jakes. After prayer and counsel with other Christian leaders and some of our elders, James believes it is best to simply resign from the Gospel Coalition and to continue his vision of gracious conversation face-to-face as a model for how to handle disagreement in the church. Find below the announcement James will post on his blog prior to the Elephant Room. We support him in stepping back from this voluntary association, our doctrinal position at Harvest, has only strengthened this past year and will not change in any way. Some who like to stir up controversy may approach you for further discussion, and we ask that you stand with us by stating only the following, quote, Pastor James stepped off the Gospel Coalition with our support. You should be proud of the battle he is fighting for grace and truth and seek to emulate his courage. He has our full support, and the doctrine of Harvest Bible Chapel remains and will remain unchanged. Wow, this is weird for me to read. And I'll tell you why is because I've seen I've seen firsthand political talking points memos. In my time when I was working 
as the treasurer for the Republican Central Committee in Southern California, I've seen Talking Points memos. I've seen them being crafted and created. They are political devices, if you would, designed at, well, uh, engaging in spin. That's the best way to put it. And this is one of the reasons why I'm no longer involved in politics, because I think spin is different than truth, don't you? A spin is something uh, having to do with protecting images rather than protecting truth. It's clear that um, Kent um, Kent Shaw with the Harvest Bible Fellowship is interested in protecting the image of James McDonald and um, uh, probably on his own wouldn't have been forthright about the fact, uh, really the the reasons for James McDonald's resignation, why the folks at the Gospel Coalition, there was a lot of pressure, a lot of heat put on James McDonald to cancel T.D. Jakes, and I think for good reason. There is insufficient evidence that he is truly Trinitarian. And I don't think this move on James McDonald's part bodes well for um, the Elephant Room Conference tomorrow, nor does it really bode well for the uh, Harvest Bible Chapel Fellowship. Uh, it was pointed out to me earlier today that um, that there's a dissension in the ranks at uh, Harvest Bible Fellowship and that uh, one church in particular has already officially disassociated themselves from James McDonald and uh, the Harvest Bible Chapel Fellowship. Now, uh, let me read this. This is from a website called The Convergence. You can find this at theconvergenceblog.blogspot.com. And uh, I think this was uh, written by Pastor Dan McGee as well as the Harvest uh, elders there uh, and uh, regarding their church's disassociation uh, with the Harvest Bible Chapel Fellowship. Here, let me read this. Uh, quoting Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 41. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best to take him with them, uh, one who had, with, who had withdrawn from them in uh, Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Uh, Here's what the uh, letter reads. For five years, our church has been privileged to be a part of the Harvest Bible Fellowship. We appreciate the ministry of James McDonald and the HBF leaders. We have been blessed to take part in the planting of Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting churches all over the world. Dozens of our church members have been equipped in ministry through Harvest Annual Conference. The Harvest Fellowship has had a significant role in the strengthening of our church. However, it is with great sadness that our elders have unanimously decided, decided to part ways with the Harvest Bible Fellowship. This is not due to any change in our church's position, but due to what we believe is a change in the fellowship's direction. James McDonald seems insistent in pushing boundaries in the area of associations with men whose ministry philosophy, practice, and even theology we can't endorse. As a member of HBF, our desire was for good, consistent, conservative leadership from HBF. When we became a member of HBF five years ago, this is what we received and this is what we could wholeheartedly endorse. However, in our estimation, that has changed. 
we have been surprised by significant decisions made by James McDonald and supported by HBF, resulting in our trust being shaken regarding their guidance as well as future direction as a movement of churches. Despite several personal conversations with HBF leadership, our concerns have not been assuaged. This sort of pushing of the boundaries was not what we signed up for when we joined the Harvest Bible Fellowship of Churches. We as elders have an obligation to guard our flock from false teaching, and our consciences have led us to this decision to disconnect from the Harvest Bible Fellowship. This has not been an easy decision at all, and is one with which we have wrestled, prayed, dialogued, studied the scriptures, prayed some more, and wrestled over again and again throughout the last five to six months. We love James McDonald and other Harvest churches, and we wish them well. We pray that God will continue to grant them fruitful ministry and that he will spare them from error and from false teaching. Please join us in our prayer for God's grace during this time of transition. We are grateful for the understanding and the support that our members have shown. Now, by the way, uh, the congregation here that has uh, disassociated is the Harvest Bible Chapel in Westland, Michigan. So uh, now I want to point this out. Who's causing division? Is it the people who are concerned with sound doctrine? No. It's James McDonald who's causing all of this division. Why? Because he is dead set on pushing the boundaries and expanding almost irrationally. Almost irrationally, because apparently he's received a, you know, a, a, a call from God to do this. This is his vision. Remember, that's what his official statement talked about. That's what the official email talked about. You know, pursuing what God has called him to do. Per, you know, protecting James McDonald's vision. But his vision and his so-called word from God is causing division because people whose consciences are bound to the word of God can no longer stay in fellowship with him. There was a lot of pressure behind the scenes at the Gospel Coalition for him to uninvite T.D. Jakes because T.D. Jakes is a modalist. So on the eve of the Elephant Room 2, James McDonald resigned his position at the Gospel Coalition. And what's happening is, is that James McDonald's direction is literally causing major division within the greater body of Christ, as well as within the Harvest Bible Fellowship. The problem is not with the people who are critics and are saying, hey, listen, the, what the Bible teaches is, is has got to be defended against error. It's the fact that he's refusing to be reined in biblically and to hear sound biblical doctrine and critique in, in, in his association with people who have clearly aligned themselves against sound biblical theology. T.D. Jakes is no model of sound doctrine, nor is he a model of a Christian pastor. He's the mo model of a TBN, money-fleecing, false heretic. That's what he is. He's a heretic who also subscribes to the modalist heresy and has never ever repudiated it so what does this bode for tomorrow's elephant room i don't think this bodes well at all i think what we could expect tomorrow and man i hope i'm wrong i'm i hope i'm wrong but at this point um james mcdonald has very little biblical accountability 
and those who are whose consciences are bound to the scriptures within his own organization, they're shaken by what he's doing to the point where they're disassociating with him. So what does this mean? With little or no accountability, James McDonald, I fully expect what's going to happen tomorrow, and man, I hope I'm wrong on this, but that he's going to do everything possible to basically engage in the Sabalian sneak. Now, you're familiar with football. In football, in the United States, we have what's called the, the quarterback sneak. You know, when that's when the two teams line up and they're inches from, you know, the, the, the team that's on offense is inches away from making a touchdown. They, you know, they hike the ball to the quarterback and he sneaks it into the end zone. Well, I, unfortunately, I think based on what we're seeing here, we can fully expect tomorrow that James McDonald is tr- going to try to engage in the Sabalian sneak. That he's going to do whatever he can to not push on clear doctrinal biblical definitions regarding the nature of God in order to sneak um, T.D. Jakes into the uh, broader body of Christ. And you can't do that. You just can't do it. All in the name of, well, what God has called him to do and his vision for what he's trying to do which is running counter to sound biblical theology and who biblical teachers should be associating with. So, I mean, there, this, there's a big, big, big story going on here, and that is, is that uh, James McDonald, following a so-called vision from God, has run afoul of uh, the people who, whose consciences are bound to sound theology, sound biblical doctrine, and rightly understanding and preaching and teaching God's Word. And so, yeah, again, this does not look good. So anyway, I just wanted to you know point that all out to you. And again, it's just odd to me that like a politician, his uh, his folks on the inside of Harvest Bible Fellowship are sending out emails, talking point emails to say, now if critics come to you, you just say this. Now here's what's really going on, but you just say this. Well, I'm glad that uh, some of the folks there have broken ranks and um, enough to uh, leak that uh, email so that uh, we can all know what's really going on. All right, we're up on our uh, first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? 
You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy! These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if your pastor has to send out talking points memos like politicians, well, you may not have a pastor on your hand. You may have a pope. Yeah, we don't need any of those. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. Six zero three eight. You know, just uh, during the break, I was rereading this sentence. I mean, this, I mean, well, sentences. I mean, l- listen to this again from this internal talking points email. I mean, I mean, serious. Is James McDonald the Pope? Is he a politician? Is he the president? Who does he think he is? I mean, seriously. I mean, this is driving me nuts. And the more I think about it, the angrier I get. 
Some who like to stir up controversy may approach you for further discussion, and we ask that you stand with us by stating only the following. Pastor James stepped off the Gospel Coalition with our support, and you should be proud of the battle he's fighting for grace and truth and seek to emulate his courage. I mean, is he Chairman Mao? I mean, this sounds like something that, you know, Kim Jong-il's folks would put out. You emulate the courage of James McDonald to sneak in a Sabalian heretic. I'm telling you, thing, really bad things are afoot. Really bad things are afoot with James McDonald in the elephant rooms. Uh, things are like way, way, way off. Which leads me to <clears throat> the next thing I want to read to you. From the uh, Biblical Christianity blog, you can find this at bibchr.blogspot.com. So Biblical Christianity reduced down to six letters. Bibcrypt. B-I-B-C-H-R dot blogspot dot com. Uh, Dan Phillips of the, the World Tilting Gospel fame has this uh, very astute observation, one worth really, truly passing along. Here we go. The name of the blog post, by the way, is Even Better Than the Race Card. If you follow the news, you have seen it happen whenever any one of the wrong pigmentation disagrees with our president's policies or those of certain of his associates, he finds himself accused of racism. Just when you think this may be dead or at least exaggerated, it pops up yet again. The hope is to sideline the logic and and the force of the criticism and to put the critic a on the defensive and b in an insoluble dilemma i.e prove you're not a racist or <laughs> on three two one go yeah, yeah so that's the idea behind the uh, the race card now such trump cards are not confined to politics of course one of the most egregious is played regularly by leaky cannoneers Perhaps you're new to these parts and unfamiliar with the expression. I invented the term leaky cannoneer to denote the person who formally says that he affirms the completeness, the inerrancy, and the closed nature of the biblical canon. Get it? Canon. Anyway, but who informally gives the lie to that profession. How? By asserting that one, God continues to speak, two, directly, three, and quotably, at least paraphrasably, four, to him, and five, apart from the scriptures. Now, I've come at this dozens of times from dozens of angles, both here and at the Pyromaniacs and elsewhere. Today's Sally is brought to you courtesy of James McDonald. Apparently, James McDonald is a leaky cannoneer. You'll forgive me for letting you do your own research for links and specifics, but we at Pyro, but we are not alone, have been plenty much on top of the situation and sometimes ahead of the curve. Two of my favorite free uh, tree falling in the forest posts were on this topic and this one. He puts links there, by the way. But anyway, James McDonald decided to feature well-known modalist and word faith teacher T.D. Jakes as a Christian leader on his Elephant Room show. A firestorm of very appropriate concern and criticism arose. McDonald responded alternately by chest-thumping, backtracking, and then more chest-thumping. Many wondered how this guy could be associated with a gospel coalition while seeming to be relatively unconcerned about, well, you know, <clears throat> the gospel. Well, as usual, Phil Johnson put it best when he said, quote, the collective leadership of the Gospel Coalition are going to have to decide which is more important, the Gospel or the Coalition. Well, no, it turns out they won't. In a solution that solves nothing, James... <laughs> Great way of putting it. In a solution that solves nothing. 
<clears throat> Sorry, I just really enjoyed that phrase. In a solution that solves nothing, James McDonald has resigned from the Gospel Coalition leadership, and as that leadership has acknowledged, is making this acknowledgement. However, they only compliment the departing brother and make no direct reference to his hosting a heretic as a Christian leader, so that problem remains unsolved. What does McDonald himself say? Oh, this and that about what you might expect. He's making his priorities pretty clear to everyone. I dare say and hope the effect is salutary. So my focus is on this bit from McDonald's post where he says, or to give the impression they agree with all God that has called me to do. That's the, you know, he, he has it circled in red. See that? McDonald doesn't want his minor leadership role to give the impression the Gospel Coalition leadership uh, agree with all that God has called me to do. So let me break that down for you who are keeping score at home. One, God has called James McDonald to do a number of things. Two, the uh, Together for the Gospel leadership might not agree with all of those things. Three, therefore, the Together for the Gospel leadership might not agree with God. Yeah, that's kind of the thing there. If, if James, if God is calling James McDonald to do the things that he's doing, well, that really ultimately means that if you disagree with what James McDonald is doing, you're in disagreement with God himself. That is the only logical, correct conclusion, and Dan Phillips has nailed it. Let me continue. Nice, huh? They do nothing but compliment their departing heretic-promoting brother, and he responds by accusing them of sinning by not agreeing with him. Because that is the rub, right? God called James McDonald to do certain things. Of this, McDonald entertains and allows no doubt. But the Gospel Coalition leadership might not agree with those things, those things that God called him, James McDonald, to do, which means they don't agree with God. So what is it, so what is it when you don't agree with God, right? Sin. That's right. Nice, huh? And slick. You see, this way, McDonald doesn't have to answer any questions. He's completely off the hook. He doesn't have to explain featuring a heretic, his judgment, his priorities. Why now? We know his priorities, according to him. He just wants to do what God tells him to do. And who can blame him for that? I mean, unfortunately, much of the leadership of the Together for the Gospel uh, the Gospel Coalition can't because at least some of them accept McDonald's position, at least in principle. God just might be mumbling and hinting and suggesting things apart from Scripture. Who can say? And let's be very clear on this as well. Do you have a verse in your Bible saying, And I commanded James McDonald to give prominent platforms to men who deny the, relev the revealed truths of my nature and to play fast and loose with Scripture on the whole. Mine... My Bible lacks that verse. Uh, this can only mean that God called James McDonald directly to do these things apart from Scripture. So you can't judge it, see? God wasn't talking to you. He wasn't talking to me. God was talking to James. This is that ugly little absolute necessary corollary of leaky cannoneering. And here it's can play the God told me card and instantly get out of all criticism. Well, not only that, right? Because we now know that James McDonald isn't someone so desperate to be popular and well-liked that he'll make unwise at, at best associations to promote himself. No, he's a hero because he and he alone is listening to the voice of God. And those other guys, pfft, carnal. 
hidebound, unspiritual, clearly because they might not agree with all that God has called James McDonald to do. So see, you thought it was James McDonald who was looking kind of bad. No, sir, no, ma'am. It's the Gospel Coalition leadership and anyone else who disagrees with McDonald for treating McDonald with kid gloves, they get thrown under the bus. And that, my friends and neighbors, is the God told me card. And it was nicely played, too. Great article. And he's right. That's the idea here. Well, God apparently has called James McDonald to, uh, well, bring in T.D. Jakes and to do the things that he's doing. He's just following the voice of God. The problem is, is that those who are opposing him in his own Harvest Bible Fellowship and those who are opposing him in the greater body of Christ are all do, are all doing so based upon what God has revealed in his word. And he's sticking to the word that he claims that he's getting directly from God apart from God's word. What does this tell you? He's t- he's believing a false spirit. He's not he's not following God the Holy Spirit because apparently God the Holy Spirit has contradicted himself. Yeah, this, great point, Dan. Great great points. Thank you for that article. All right, moving along from the Christian Post. The headline reads: Mega Church Revival Reignites Discipleship versus Evangelism Debate. Written by Brittany Smith. By the way, this isn't a debate. This isn't an either or. But let me let me uh, remind you as to why this is a debate going on. Because men like Ed Young came to Elevation Church and told people not to expect to go deep, and basically, you know, berated people for expecting to be taught deep theology. Yeah, you know, this is a ta- classic tactical move on the part of the seeker-driven guys. Why? Because people who have any kind of biblical really true, solid biblical understanding of what the scriptures teach would realize these guys are mishandling God's word and their show would be up. Anyway, Brittany Smith writes, she says, what's more important, reaching the lost or growing the reached? Over the past two decades, the ongoing debate between discipleship and evangelism took center stage during one megachurch's Code Orange Revival. Elevation Church, a seeker-friendly church in Charlotte, North Carolina, hosted a 12-night old-school revival that ended Sunday night featuring presentations from well-known pastors like Ed Young, Perry Noble, T.D. Jakes, and the event drew thousands of attendees, but it also attracted critics who raised important questions for the evangelical church. Stephen Furtick, lead pastor of Elevation, has made it clear that his church's main main goal is about reaching out to unbelievers. In fact, in the uh, his church's list of core values called the code states, quote, we need your seat. We are more concerned with the people we are trying to reach than the people that we are trying to keep. We are more concerned, okay. more concerned. This is so this is by their own st- by their own admission. They are more concerned with the people we're trying to reach and the people we're trying to keep. He told those attending the Code Orange Revival on night seven, we are all about the numbers. Elevation has grown to six campuses in just six years and claims to have more than 10,000 people attending their services on any given Sunday. Many pastors, including Craig Rochelle and Ed Young, have taken note of the rapid growth. Young, pastor of Texas-based Fellowship Church, the author of the new book's experiment, highlighted on night five of the revival that Elevation has baptized about a squillion people. That's growth. However, a wide variety of theologians and watchdog organizations have a different view. David Wells, senior research professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, put it this way in an email to the Christian Post, quote, At the two NFL playoff games this weekend, 
Uh, there were large, enthusiastic crowds, but a crowd by itself is no indicator of the work of God. Chris Rosebro, apologist and host of the radio program Fighting for the Faith and longtime critic of Elevation, told the Christian Post, they equate somebody who wants to go deeper in their understanding of theology as someone who is missing the need to be keyed into the latest move of the Spirit. He said uh, pastors like Furtick and Young believe that they know the Spirit is moving because of how many people showed up. They have a popular message and are doing a great job of puffing up people's egos and telling them what they want to hear. He compared Elevation to a Chinese company that produces millions of plastic toys that break easily and don't last. Quote, it's more expensive and time-consuming to make something that has quality, he noted. Now, I'm going to point something out here. This, this is the idea. I have a master's degree in business administration from Pepperdine University. And so I know a little bit about business. I mean, I've spent uh, you know more than a decade in the corporate world. So I know a little bit about business and how businesses run. And here's the idea. There are multiple different metrics, metrices, metrics that uh, companies can look at. And uh, you listen, it doesn't matter if a company makes a million widgets, okay? If the widgets break really easily and the company ends up getting a lot of returns, that, those returns eat into their profits. So a company needs to not only look at quantity, they must also look at quality. That's the point I'm making here. And so elevation, always pointing to the numbers, always pointing to the numbers, always pointing to the numbers. It doesn't matter if you make a million cheap toys. You, know, you ever, you ever uh, received a cheap toy, you know, when you were a kid from China, you know, or, you know, some other, uh, you know, third world, you know, nation that produces things really inexpensively. And it lasts, you can play with it for about 4.2 minutes. And after 4.2 minutes, it goes, bing, and it breaks and you can't play with it anymore because it's broken. And if you play with it, you're going to, you're going to cut yourself and bleed. Well, yeah, I, somewhere in you know in one of those countries, there's some executive going, "Ah, yes, we've made one million of these toys. They all break after you know four point two minutes, but they made a million of them. Isn't that great? That's the point I'm trying to make here. So these guys always are pointing to their numbers. Oh, you can't criticize us. We got numbers. We've got numbers. We, we've got life change. We've got numbers. <clears throat> That's just quantity. We must also look at quality. The two go together. Anyway, <clears throat> John Harden, a writer for Nine Marks, a Washington, D.C.-based organization that helps church leaders define success as faithfulness to God, recently completed his dissertation on the history of church promotion in the 20th century. He told the Christian Post that he often is uh, he, that often it's easier for churches to measure their success in numbers because it's how our society measures success. Quote, Quality is hard to measure unless it's in a numerical ranking system. He said, a quality hotel is one with five stars or 50 positive reviews or 500 guests for a profit of $50,000. It's much easier to measure and communicate success by reporting 50 baptisms instead of the details of the transformation in one person's life. And at 21st century churches, big numbers mean big success. And big success means God is behind it. So don't you dare question it. For Wells, the real indicator of success is once people are brought into the church, whether or not they see Christ as their Redeemer. Quote, whether they know that he bore their sin 
and gave them his righteousness, whether is there is a deepening conviction of sin, whether people yearn to find new levels of faithfulness, whether they are given themselves to the service of Christ and so on. These are the only indicators there are as to whether God has been at work or not, he said. Apologist and author Frank Turek agreed that numbers aren't always the whole picture. It could be a measure of success, but it could also be a measure of popularity. Joel Osteen preaches a mild prosperity gospel and hardly ever talks about sin. He's got the largest church in America. I would say that's not necessarily a measure of success for making disciples, Turek pointed out. He told the Christian Post that part of the responsibility of the church is to make disciples. Just getting people to make a decision for Christ isn't enough. Turek added that while it's a good thing that churches like Elevation are focused on reaching the lost, there is a problem. If the numbers don't convert to disciples, he said, Jesus didn't say, come make believers. He said, go and make disciples. That's exactly right. So the idea here is this. Um, Elevation Church has, throughout its history, berated and beaten people up because they come to church expecting to be fed, to, you know, to be discipled. And over and again, they are told, you know, stop complaining about the lack of depth. You know, you know, and, and it almost to a point where what's really happening in these churches Churches like Elevation and Ed Young's church. Remember back what Ed Young said we featured here last week during the Code Orange Revival. Um, you know, these people are being berated for wanting doctrinal depth and good theology and to, for understanding the scriptures. And they're told over and again, uh-uh, we have more, more, more of a focus on the people who are not here than keeping the people who are already here. Yeah, that's pitting evangelism against discipleship. And the scriptures don't leave us that option. It do, they don't leave us that option. We are to do both. So in order for Elevation Church to straighten up, fly right, and do what the scripture commands them to do, they need to stop berating people who want to have depth and stop you know, constantly, constantly, constantly saying things like we're more concerned about the person outside than we are about the person here. Because the reality is, is that the church is called to both reach the lost and disciple the believer. You don't get out of it. You don't get to pick one or the other. The Bible teaches that we are beholden to do both, which then leads to our last piece for this hour. And that is a note regarding changed lives. Um, this was written by a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley on his blog, strictandparticular.blogspot.com. You can find it. It's called A Note on Changed Lives. Uh, Pastor Charmley writes, he says, Doing some research in our church's history, I came across this article in the magazine of the denominations, a denomination we used to belong to in the 1930s. It's, it is instructive, particularly given that the Bethel, Bible, uh, the Bethel Society had Pentecostal roots. Here's what it says. A note on changed lives. Can Satan change lives? Practically every modern movement seems to be able to produce changed lives so that the true believer is apt to be considerably puzzled. Cults such as Christian science, spiritualism, uh, most certainly have men and women whose lives have been transformed into characters of beauty. Surely, evil could not produce such fruits. Many think, therefore, that though such cults, and there are, and there are 
many others, may contain plenty of error in doctrine, etc., yet Christ must be dwelling in the lives of many of the adherents who are so clearly living the life of kindness, unselfishness, and peace. Is it possible that Satan can change lives? Well, some years ago, the Sunday School Times published the testimony of a Christian woman who had been remarkably delivered in answer to prayer from the satanic cult of Baha'ism. When she first accepted the teaching of this cult, there came into her life a wonderful peace and quietness, and she had a remarkable control over her children that she had never had before. Please note that her life was changed, but it was not changed by Christ. Finally, she was delivered and entered into the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and knew the meaning of the fruit of the Spirit, but not before. So Satan can change lives, and apparently for the better, but the word in italics is very important. That's the word apparently. And the true Christian has to be very wary in judging a new movement and its so-called changed lives. There are counterfeits of the Christian spiritual life, which are very subtle, very deceptive, and highly dangerous. They imitate certain parts of the fruit of the Spirit. Note, in passing, that there is only one fruit of the Spirit, although it is a cluster of nine parts. Read Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. So how may we tell the real from the false? By observing whether one special part of this fruit is present or absent. One part of the fruit of the Spirit is absent from all false religions, even though other parts are simulated, and that part is faith. No false cult brings its adherence to faith in the shed blood of the Lamb of God as the only way of salvation. If this one part of the fruit of the Spirit is missing, you may safely assume that the other eight are likewise absent, no matter how plausible the counterfeits may seem. From the Bethel Messenger, December 1937, Thank you for Pastor, uh, to Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley for posting that on his site. And the reason why that article is so important to review and read here at Fighting for the Faith is because, well, right now, uh, all of the critics of the um, Code Orange revival are constantly being told, this has to be of Jesus. Look at all the life change. Look, I mean, people have had their lives changed. Yeah, uh-huh. Again, um, I heard God's word twisted. I heard narcissistic eisegesis. The only person I clearly heard the biblical gospel from was from Matt Chandler on night one, on was night three. That's the only person I heard rightly handle God's word. The rest of the teachers there engaged in Bible twisting, narcissistic eisegesis, and just flat out heretical nonsense. I didn't hear people having, you know, being confronted with their sins. I didn't hear people being told that they need to repent of their wickedness and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins? No, I didn't hear that at all. Instead, I heard, are you are you struggling? Are you having a, a burp or a hiccup or a, you know, a, a a detour on your travels and journey to greatness? Well, you're called to be something amazing. You just need to believe that with God all things are possible. That's not the biblical gospel. That's a false gospel. And that doesn't produce faith and repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. It basically um, creates faith in faith, which is a circle, which is part of what the um, 
word faith heresy is all about. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, um, yeah. So don't sit there and point to your changed lives. I want to know how many people were truly brought and driven to their knees in repentance for their wickedness, and are been and were had Christ placarded for the forgiveness of their sins, so that true repentance and faith. Were what the fruit uh, were the fruit of that preaching? I want to those those are the lives I want to talk about, and then let's track to see how their discipleship is going. Don't sit there and talk about changed lives right now. We're only a couple of days past the revival. That's like talking about changed lives on January second because of all the people who made New Year's resolutions. We all know how long those last, don't we? All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. we got two fantastic sermons you are not going to want to miss. And you're going to hear Law and Gospel, Sin and Grace, Repentance and the Forgiveness of Sins. Trust me, they're fantastic. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. These are <laughs> these sermons are amazing. They are gonna blow your face back. I mean, blow your hair off. They can blow the hair off a dog. I mean, double flamethrower of biblical truth and the law rightly done. Oh man, these are fantastic. But you've been warned about <laughs> the other part of it. Here, let's uh, let's do this right. Here we go. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons 
come to us via Riverbend Lutheran Church, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Pastor Cy Van uh, Manen, I can't pronounce his last name, uh, presiding. We'll, we'll refer to him moving forward as Pastor Cy. You find his uh, church's website at riverbendlutheran.com. Now, I'm going to go with the easy one first. The, uh, the first sermon we're going to listen to is entitled, Who is this guy? Who is this guy? It's a sermon based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 46. The second is entitled, How Sinful is Too Sinful? And that particular sermon is based upon Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, as well as verse 10. The thing I like about these sermons, this guy doesn't give an abstract, um, systematic theology lesson when it comes to repentance. He preaches repentance. You'll see what I'm talking about, especially in the second sermon. Let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Pastor Sai and his first sermon entitled, Who is this guy? And uh, that's the this is the easier of the two to listen to, but just trust me, these are fantastic. Here we go. Grace and mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today comes from John Chapter 1, verses 43 through 46. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth! Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. This is the text. Dear friends in Christ, Jesus, just who is this guy? When Nathaniel first hears that Philip has found the one who Moses and the prophets speak about, I'm sure he was thinking, finally, finally the Messiah has arrived. But his hopes are quickly dashed when he finds out this man is from Nazareth. Nazareth, can anything good possibly come from there? Nathaniel asks the obvious question, if nothing good can come from Nazareth, then how can the highest good, the Messiah, possibly come from there? Even so, Nathaniel follows Philip's invitation to come and see. And Nathaniel must have thought, who is this guy? It is the same question that the crowds ask later in Jesus' ministry. We hear in Luke, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets, come back from long ago. It is the same question the disciples Ask when Jesus is asleep in the boat. And the disciples, for fear of their lives, wake Jesus up. And he calms the storm with a word, and Mark tells us, they were terrified, and they ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey his voice. It is the same question that is asked later in the book of John, when Jesus is confronted by the Jews, and they ask him outright, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. Herod asked this question when people were saying that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life. Herod says, well, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? When Jesus heals the invalid by the pool in John 5, the Jews asked the healed man, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The same question the crowds ask on Palm Sunday. Scripture tells us when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred. And they ask, who is this? Who is this guy, Jesus? 
it is the same question that people of this day, like it or not, have to ask themselves. They are confronted by the question, who is Jesus? Whether it is leaving the Christ in Christmas or remembering Easter and its roots, whether it is singing our country's anthem, which we say, God, keep our land, God, keep our land glorious and free, or God, save the queen, or the first line in Canada's Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which states, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, whether it be the crosses that adorn our churches in this country or old architecture with crosses on it, whether it is the faithful witness of Christians such as yourselves in everyday life, that people that you work with and live with, Jesus is apparent in our culture and our lives and cannot be avoided. And eventually, people have to ask themselves the question, Jesus, who is this guy? All throughout history, people have tried to answer the question from their own point of view. A well-known Greek writer from the second century named Celsus said this of Jesus, that there was this guy, Jesus, who invented his birth from a virgin. He was born of a poor woman who gained her subsistence from spinning, was turned out of doors by her husband. She was convicted of adultery. She disgracefully gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child, who having hired himself out to a servant in Egypt on account of his poverty, there he acquired some miraculous powers, returned to his own country, elevated on account of them, and by these means proclaimed himself a god. Hegel, the philosopher, wrote about Jesus, among the approvers of humanity, there is no greater ideal than Jesus. He stands in the very first class and remains the highest model of religion within our reach and our thought. Renan, the French rationalist, said of Jesus, Jesus is unique in everything and nothing can compare to him. He is a man of colossal dimension. When a person in their own rational thought or of their own imagination try to define, describe, or depict Jesus the man, they may say like Celsus, the second century writer did, he is a lunatic or he is a liar. Or maybe like the philosophers, they would define Jesus as a man of greatness, a teacher of renown, an ideal for humanity, a model for mankind. The world today, in spite of the fact that there is more historical evidence for Jesus than there is for Julius Caesar, may claim that Jesus is myth or even legend. But the fact is this, Jesus is so much more. Nathaniel, who questioned, can this really be the Messiah from Nazareth, was surprised when Christ revealed himself as all-knowing by saying that he saw him under the fig tree. In this moment, Nathanael recognizes Jesus for whom he really is and exclaims it. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus was so much more than Nathaniel expected. And this exclamation is not so unusual in Scripture. When Jesus asked the disciples, Who do the crowds think I am? They say, All these other guys. Who do you think I am? He asked the disciples. They say, You are the Christ of God. Jesus' disciples in the boat, when they see Jesus walk on the water, they exclaim, Truly you are the Son of God. God the Father says of his Son, both at his baptism and transfiguration, says, this is my Son. The Pharisees asked Jesus for a plain answer. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the living God? Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. And in Luke, they ask him, are you the Son of God? He replied, you are right 
in saying that I am. Thomas, who doubts that Jesus had risen from the dead, sees Jesus with his own eyes, touches his hand, hands and his side, and says, My Lord and my God. The world might ask, Who is this Jesus? And they may add to the end of that, Well, what's the big deal? But this is not just a big deal. Knowing who Jesus is, is the biggest deal of all time. And the deal is this, that Jesus is God in the flesh, not just a man or a model for mankind, not a myth or a legend or an idea, but God. God incarnate who so loved the world, who so loves you, that he took on human flesh, was incarnate, turned away from heaven, came to earth, to a world that revels in their sin and clings to it, a sinful people that cannot by their own means, muscle, or ministrations save themselves. This one true God chose to take on human flesh, was stripped and whipped, splattered with spit, battered with fists, pierced with nails, crowned with thorns, hammered down and lifted up to bear your sins in his body and to die a death to give you eternal life. When Nathaniel and the disciples saw in the flesh the Christ, They proclaimed him. This Christ we see in God's word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Without Christ, there is only death and despair and depravity and damnation. But in Christ, there is forgiveness and peace and life everlasting. Dear friends, you like Nathaniel know that Jesus is much more than just a man from Nazareth. God has given you faith to see Jesus as the Christ the God-man who gave his life for you and now sits at the right hand of the Father, speaking for you, protecting you, leading you, and loving you. God the Son gave his life for you on the cross so that you would be forgiven and has risen from the dead to show you the grave could not hold him. So shall it hold you neither. Who is this Jesus? He is true God, Savior of the world. He is your Savior. He loves you. You are forgiven. He will never let you go. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. And now let us great. Okay, now for sermon number two. How sinful is too sinful? Watch how he does law and gospel here, and he starts with himself and builds out. Watch this. This is amazing. And mercy and peace be unto you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for today comes from... The book of Jonah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When God saw what they did, how how they turned from their evil, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the text. How sinful is too sinful? My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there have been times in my life When I've thought to myself, this time I don't think God can forgive me. This time I have gone too far. Those dark hours of the soul when you wonder about yourself, who am I? 
Why am I so evil? Those times when somebody says, you're a good guy. And I know that within the recesses of my soul that I am so evil and so rotten. I wonder, how phony am I that they can think that I am a good person? I remember once somebody said to me on Vicarage, you are a good vicar. And one day you're going to be a good pastor. I said to them, if you knew me, if you really, really knew me, you would not want to know me. I like it when people say to me, or when I say that to them, and they're saying, well, you're, you're too hard on yourself, Pastor, saying you're that evil. Oh, good, because I have never liked those passages of God's law that condemn me and say there is no one righteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've always expected as I've moved farther along in this life that I might be less sinful or at least act less sinful. I've always wanted God's law to loosen its grip on me. When I read it or I hear it and I think, oh, why does God's law have to be so right about me? Why can't I live like the heathen and care a little bit less about my conscience or my eternal life? I have heard preachers of God's word speaking God's law as if they were peeking in the windows of my house all week and then laying bare my sin for the whole congregation to see. And I look around and think, I hope no one notices that the pastor is talking about me. How sinful is too sinful? I am your called and ordained servant. And I tell you, you cannot know the depth of my sin if you imagined me even in the worst possible light. Dear children, how sinful is too sinful? Are we prepared as a church to have amongst us pimps and porn kings and prostitutes? How about those people who have hurt us in the past? How about abusers of children? How about murderers? How about the truly heinous? God has got to draw the line somewhere because I know in my heart of hearts that I do. Yeah, even though the law convicts me, and I think that I'm a bad, a sinful man, my sinful nature pulls one over me again and tricks me into thinking, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, maybe not the fasting twice a week thing, as you can see from my svelte form. If I am a 9 on a 10 scale for bad, then the Assyrians, whom Jonah is called to preach to by God, they are a 12. In Jonah's time, the Assyrians were masters of war, slaughtering people by the hundreds of thousands. And when they went to war, they did horrible things, like make the survivors of their own, the, the beaten people, grind up the bones of the slain, their own slain countrymen, or they would collect the heads of the dead warriors to accurately calculate how many people they had killed. The Assyrians killed infants in the streets of those they conquered. The prophet Nahum speaks of the fall of the Assyrians and the rejoicing in the land and surrounding areas with their fall when he says, All who hear the news about your fall, clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? The Assyrians had taken the Israelites and many other nations as slaves, dragging them from their homelands to be relocated into slavery wherever the Assyrians chose to put them. 
So God calls Jonah to preach to these evil people who worship Ishtar, the goddess of war, and are cruel to all who they conquer. Jonah is a Hebrew. He does not want to preach to these people of Assyria in their great capital of Nineveh. So he runs away, and God uses a storm and a bunch of sailors and a big fish to get him to Nineveh. So he runs away, and God drags Jonah back, back to Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to preach. Jonah is one of God's elect. He is a chosen son of Abraham. But God wants him to preach to the Gentiles. And not even nice Gentiles, but warlords and slavers, cruel and evil Gentiles. In spite of his reluctance, Jonah goes and preaches the word of the Lord, and we hear from Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah does not say to the people of Nineveh, turn or burn. He says to them, you will burn. That is God's law, unwavering in its demands. It is not a slap on the wrist or a spank on the bottom. It promises for the Ninevites the same thing it promises for you and me and anyone else who breaks God's ordinances. Whether we or they listen or not, it promises death, both physical and eternal. With this threat hanging over their heads and no way to wiggle out from under such a threat, a strange thing happens. Jonah records, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. God's word produces repentance. The Ninevites are terrified for now they know that God will not stand for their sin. And the king issues a proclamation and publishes it throughout Nineveh. And it says, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. They didn't even know if God would relent. The king says, who knows? Who knows what God will do? Jonah knows. Jonah knows and waits with great anticipation for the destruction to come upon these people of Nineveh, these sinful, cruel Gentiles. But scripture says the Lord stays his hand of destruction. And Jonah is upset and says to God, O Lord, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste and fled for Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, now take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah might as well say, these people are too sinful for you, O God, too sinful to forgive. They are not even your elect. They are not your chosen. They are slavers. They are bloodlusting warmongers. Dear friends, how sinful is too sinful? There is no too sinful for God. The Ninevites must have known, must have known that God was merciful. And why? Because he gave them time. He gave them 40 days. If he were tyrannical, 
like they were. He would have just struck them down with no warning and destroyed them. But God is long-suffering, giving time where none is deserved. As Peter tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. God forgives. Forgives for the sake of his son who sent was sent to us at just the right time, while we were still powerless. He came to die for the ungodly, for the Ninevites, for you, for me. Sometimes I am like Jonah, thinking, the church is full enough. Please don't ask me to preach to idolaters or blasphemers, or the heathen or pagans or haters or murderers or adulterers or thieves or slanderers or coveters or the Ninevites. But I am all those things. I am a 12 on the 10 scale of sin, and not just because I think so, but because God's law says so. My conscience is seared. My sin is perpetual. My repentance is half-hearted. So what hope is there for me? In me, in and of myself, none. Nor for the Ninevites, nor for you in and of yourselves. But in Christ, there is forgiveness, fully and completely. You are not too sinful for God's grace in Christ to pay for your sins once and for all. As far as the east is from the west, so God has removed your sins from you. Dear friends, let the sinful come. Throw wide the doors of this church, not because we were once like them, but because we are them knowing forgiveness in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Dear friends, forgiven. You are forgiven in Christ and given a place in God's great city, heaven, and a seat at the marriage feast of the Lamb, which shall have no end. Forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now may God's peace, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in and through Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.